You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Didn't you coach Burt Reynolds? Yes, I did. Was he any good? He was a defensive back. I know. Was he any good? I said. 103.9 FM LI News Radio presents the Weekend Crunch with Errol Marks and Speedy Petey. Hello, Long Island, New York, and around the country. This is the Weekend Crunch. I am your host, Errol Marks, my co-host, Speedy. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Oh, my Lord, is the weather getting better? Maybe it's just no more summer and just all winter. When the weather just goes in, what tightens out? I guess the weather. We have a great show lined up for you guys. A little bit later in the show, we will be talking to Twins, Pirates, Marlins, and Yankees. Former first baseman and right fielder Garrett Jones. He is fantastic. You guys are going to really enjoy him. He's a first-time guest on our radio show, so we're very excited to have him on the show. We have a lot of topics to get into today. As Stefan Digg wants out of Buffalo, stories coming out of Buffalo that he does no longer want to be a part of the Buffalo Bills organization. Corey Davis announces his retirement. Very interesting story. It's out of the blue. Jonathan Taylor gets permission to see a trade partner. Shayotani has a torn UCL, will not pitch again this season, and will not pitch next year. I promise you guys, you will not see him in that roster as far as pitching is concerned. This week is the first week of the NCAA season as college football is about to start, but this story will absolutely grow legs as Reggie Bush files a lawsuit against the NCAA. NHL Austin Matthews gets a four-year, $53 million extension from the Maple Leafs. The Rangers get give Alexi Lafreniere a new deal. The Lightning extend their wonderful deal with young and talented Brandon Hagel. Eight years. So the Lightning has signed their young superstar player. Steph Curry says on the Gilbert Arenas podcast that he is the greatest point guard of all time. And the only player that's close is Magic Johnson. So we all know Steph Curry is running his ego trip. But nevertheless, first things first, we're going to get into some football. As Stephen Diggs, should the Buffalo Bills extend him for another couple of years? That is the question only the Buffalo Bills can answer. Stephen A. Smith said on Monday, insiders have told him that Stephen Diggs wants out of Buffalo. Diggs tweeted in a response, 100% not true. Which means Stephen A. Smith is getting his own information from his little pea brain. Diggs called his riff with Josh Allen at the start of training camp minor. And they nipped it on the butt. Diggs has two more years on his current contract and then has an opt-out clause in 2025 when he will be 32 years old. This story is not a surprise. There were a lot of questions after the season, after losing in the playoffs against the Bengals in that blizzard of a storm in Buffalo, that Josh Allen wasn't giving Stephen Diggs the ball enough. That Stephen Diggs was crying that he didn't see the ball enough, even though he saw the ball 15 times. Now, I believe Stephen Diggs is one of the more talented wide receivers in the league. I'm not a big fan of his. I wasn't a big fan of his in Minnesota. When he was traded for arguably the best wide receiver in all of football, nobody knew that was going to happen in Jefferson. It just fell right for Minnesota. They got the best player in that draft. 
Nonetheless, and there has to be a story behind this. Buffalo in the offseason losing pieces. They didn't lose major pieces. They lost Edmonds. He goes to the Chicago Bears. They lose their defensive coordinator in Leslie Frazier. This defense, which everybody says is going to be better than it was last year because of Von Miller and because of some of the players that they were missing in the second half of the season, they believe that this team is still the number one team in the AFC East. But when you look at Miami, they added a new defensive coordinator, one of the better defensive coordinators in football. They added Ramsey, who I'm not a big fan of either, but he's still one of the top five corners in all of football. And the weapons that they have, Tyree Kill, Waddle, and if Tua can actually stay healthy this year, White isn't, he gets hurt this weekend, the Miami Dolphins are going to be a very good team. And then there's the New England Patriots. They only got better defensively this offseason. This is a very good defense. This is a defense that was ranked number eight in all of football in almost every single category. Bill Belichick is one of the best defensive minds in football. You bring back O'Brien, a competent offensive coordinator. We don't have Judge and Mr. Scientist calling plays on the sideline anymore. You actually have a competent guy that understands how to run an offense. And Mac Jones, who everybody was taking shots last year about because he had an off year, and that usually happens in a sophomore year. He had a very good rookie season. His second year wasn't so good, and he has a chance to prove himself in a division that's so competitive, probably the most competitive division in football. And then there's the New York Jets, the additions that they made, the Dalvin Cooks, and obviously the Aaron Rodgers. So you look at Buffalo, Buffalo didn't really have that many additions to this team. This team is not moving forward, it could be moving backwards. The Bills are in that spot where you look at a championship quote-unquote window with a current core, and you look at the Bills starting the way they rebuilt in 2017 with this regime. Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott both coming over from Carolina. They've stayed together for all this time for the six years. I think Bean has been one of the best general managers in the NFL. McDermott is a good coach, I would not call him a top-tier coach. Now it comes to the point for Buffalo where... Stephon Diggs realizes this could be like a last shot type of thing with this particular group of players. Now, Josh Allen's going to be there for the long haul, obviously. They have a couple offensive linemen that are locked up nicely. A lot of these core pieces that they built to this playoff identity on are either gone or, in the case of guys like Tredavious White, injury-prone and has not looked the same player since then. And maybe Stephon Diggs realizes that. I agree with him to an extent where I don't believe there was as much tension with Josh Allen as people are making it out to be. I think it's more with the coaching staff. I think it's more with Ken Dorsey. He liked Brian Dable a lot more. And Ken Dorsey, which a lot of Bills fans questioned last year as an offensive coordinator, that might have dragged them down. And if he believes that maybe McDermott as a defensive coordinator won't be the same either, maybe that's why. Josh Allen isn't the same quarterback he was when Dable was there. And you can see the difference in his game in the second half of the season. He was not healthy, as we saw last year, as Huff hit him against the Jets. And he wasn't the same player. He hurt his arm. Elbow wasn't the same. You saw what happened when he played Minnesota. I just think that Josh Allen needs to figure it out himself. Now, Obviously, what Dable did for Daniel Jones shows you that he is a quarterback whisperer. He understands how to help quarterbacks develop their skills if they're missing something. And the same thing with Josh Allen. When he came into the league, his throwing motion was completely different until Dable helped him change it. So you look at the tension of this team. When you see tension in the locker room from two of your best players, that's not a good sign. Going into the season, and I don't care what Stefan Diggs says, because we saw what he did over there in Minnesota, practically pushing his way out of there because he didn't want to be there because Steelin was seeing the ball more than he was. And also you look at the Bills the way they're positioned right now, too. Is Stephen on Diggs having to be a lot of this offense because of the way they have been able to build these other positions up with the wide receivers. Now they drafted a tight end in Kincaid who I think can be good and they still got 
Done off. Done well in hitting on late draft picks as a result because you're right. They haven't been able to make that big swing in terms of getting a big name guy like you see in the Bengals getting Orlando Brown, Kansas City with all the veteran signings they always end up getting too. And they haven't been able to take that next step because they've cash strapped themselves so much. And I've liked their drafts in recent years, but they're not going to be stars. And you're not going to see this massive improvement from them until those other guys become stars or at least two of those guys become stars on the defense and maybe on the offensive line, especially in the secondary though. You worry because Tredavious White's injuries, the veteran safeties. And Gabe Davis didn't have a great year last no. year either. He fell off from the season before with Dable. And Dable, knowing that Gabe Davis is going to be a free agent after this season, that could be a player that the Giants look at when he becomes a free agent. If Diggs doesn't want to be there, and Gabe Davis is a free agent next year, do the Buffalo Bills extend him? Do they give him a contract if they know that their star wide receiver who's 32 years old could be on his way out? They might have to trade because they're going to have to pay him $27.5 million next season. I don't think they're going to really have a choice because they don't have great depth besides that. The third guy is Khalil Shakir, who was a rookie last year, who played all right at the end of the season, but he was supposed to be a big-name prospect, so they almost have to sign Gabe Davis, and they might have to take the approach of the Chiefs and hope that they can have Josh Allen make these random receivers work like Patrick Mahomes. But what happens if Gabe Davis doesn't have another good season? How are you going to extend him? How are you going to pay a wide receiver that has back-to-back seasons without Dable, who really didn't spark? We saw what he did in the playoffs. We saw what he did against Kansas City. Davis has not been the same player, and you see the difference when you lose an offensive coordinator, when you lose a defensive coordinator. Let's see what Philadelphia is going to do this year after losing their defensive and offensive coordinator. And that's the approach they're going to have to take, though, because they are not going to find that other star receiver. I don't think Gabe Davis, even on his own, is a number one receiver. The way he played last year, he played more like a number three receiver. He's a number two in some other years, fine. But you have to have some kind of approach of depth if you're not going to be able to have the star. And that's why I'm saying the Bills have to hit on one of these late-round draft picks to have them be stars, because otherwise there's nobody for the defense to be able to take attention off of. Like, the Chiefs can get away with it because they have Travis Kelsey. Who is that guy for the Bills besides Stephon Diggs? You question some of these players. Everybody has a personality trait. I follow Josh Allen. I love what he has to say about his team. Stephon Diggs, everywhere he's gone, he speaks about himself like he is the best wide receiver in football. He's not even a top five wide receiver in football right now. And he's going to blame Josh Allen, as he did in Minnesota, blaming the coaches, blaming the players. He's a cancer in the locker room. We've seen this before. And when a wide receiver is not happy... Antonio Brown, you see the difference in what they do in the locker room. And they don't fit. And when you have a young quarterback like Josh Allen, where you're building your franchise around him, you don't need somebody like that in your locker room. Josh Allen has really covered this up very, very well. And that's what you expect from your franchise quarterback. He is going to protect the players. He's going to protect the players by putting it all on himself. I've seen Stefan Diggs speak this offseason one time. Didn't want to get into depth about what was going on behind closed doors. Josh Allen, he says it was a misunderstanding and he explained the misunderstanding between him and Diggs. The whole Jonathan Taylor thing keeps growing legs. I'm questioning Jonathan Taylor because some of the things that we've heard before he was drafted, and a lot of teams decided not to draft him because of his attitude. And when they interviewed him at the Combine, they weren't happy with some of the answers that he gave them. The Colts have now given Jonathan Taylor permission to seek out a possible trade partner. The Colts say they want a first-round pick for Taylor or a package of draft picks of similar value. The Colts have until August 29th, my sister's birthday, to trade Taylor. Several league executives believe the Colts could get a second or a third-round pick for Taylor. Executives believe Taylor will get a contract that will be a five-year and somewhere between 11 to $13 million per year. In three seasons and 43 games, Taylor has 3,841 rushing yards, 33 touchdowns, which is a lot, averaging 5.1 yards per carry. Jonathan Taylor, how many games did he play last year? 
Jonathan Taylor, going into the season last year, was supposed to be a top three running back. Jonathan Taylor wasn't even in the top ten in anything. The Indianapolis Colts, if they lose Jonathan Taylor, who's their offensive weapon? They have Richardson. They're starting a rookie quarterback. They have no running game if they lose Jonathan Taylor. Who's their wide receivers? Pittman and Allen Pease. Now, I like Pittman. But Pittman was playing injured last year. I think he's a really good player. But if teams know that Pittman is going to see the ball even more than he did over the last two seasons, they're going to double team on him. They're going to make their rookie quarterback force balls in places he's not comfortable doing or using his legs, which could get him injured. Losing a significant offensive piece to your offense really hurts the growth of your young quarterback, and the growth of a young rookie coach. A rookie coach that's going to have to do some extra coaching if, one, they can't get any good compensation to help them this year for Jonathan Taylor, and also, two, the risk of starting Richardson as it is with very little game experience in college is going to be very hard to trust in that kind of offense. Now, I like Alec Pierce, too, as a second option, good big-bodied receiver, but he was hurt a lot last year. They lost Paris Campbell. He goes to the Giants. Their tight end position has been the rotating thing for the last five years. They've had some random breakouts, but only small sample breaks out so far. Jonathan Taylor is that one steady force. It took him a while to get going in the league, broke out at the end of the season, and the Colts made the playoffs. And the same kind of thing happened the next year. He was bad for the first month. Then he, out of nowhere, became the best running back in football. They don't have that kind of steadying force because they only have one real offensive weapon if they do end up trading Taylor. And teams are going to be able to game plan for that very easily if these guys can't stay healthy, especially. And this is a guy that's forcing his way out, speaking so highly of himself, when he had one good season. I do believe certain running backs should get paid. Jonathan Taylor, who has been forcing his way out of the Indianapolis Colts since the end of last season, because there were stories coming out he wasn't getting along with Jeff Saturday, and that he didn't want to play at the end of the season. He really didn't even want to be there. And then there were stories coming out throughout this offseason that he has been demanding a new contract, and if he doesn't get a new contract, he wants to be traded. And now all of a sudden, the team is letting him go out and try to find a trade partner. And he has till August 29th to find it. And they want a first-round draft pick for him, which they're not going to get because he didn't have a good season last year. If he put up the numbers he did the year before, maybe they get a first-round draft pick for Jonathan Taylor. But right now, Jonathan Taylor isn't worth that. There are running backs that are worth that kind of money. You're going to tell me Saquon Barkley, who took almost 50% of his team snaps offensively, doesn't deserve the money he should have received this offseason by the New York Giants? And shame on the Giants because they're going to lose him to free agency next year because they can't franchise him in the contract. The Colts are in a tricky spot, too, and only having little amount of time to trade him, and that's Jim Irsay's ego taking over, and it's going to end up hurting the team again. We saw them ruin Andrew Luck the way he, they did. They did not draft well at all from that whole stretch, 2013-18. We've seen them have bad relationships with these other defensive players, and they've lost a lot of them. Darius Leonard is really only the last of those good ones left. They traded for DeForest Buckner, fine, but they've ruined a lot of relationships. It doesn't seem like they're ones that always attract the free agents, too, despite always having a lot of money. So something is going on in that front office. A lot of these other players, these big-name players, do not like. And it's not just Taylor that has to get paid, too. Pittman's on the last year of his deal, too. But are you surprised with Jim Ursay as their owner of their team that there's stuff going behind closed yeah. doors? We all know about the stories that were going on years and years ago with Jim Ursay popping Vikings and even some of the players that were doing it as well. I think there's a lot of questions with this whole Jonathan Taylor thing, and then there's stories coming out from the Indianapolis Colts organization that there was things going on before they drafted him. Questions that they had not only from Jonathan Taylor and his family, but some of the coaches from his college team on his attitude and his personality traits that he was bringing to the combine, which some of the teams really didn't even like. This Jonathan Taylor story is going to grow legs. If he does get traded before August 29th, he's probably going to go to a team like the Miami Dolphins and CBS Sports.
reports Josina Anderson reports that the Dolphins are interested in trading for Jonathan Taylor. The Dolphins have asked Josh Jacobs, but the Raiders said they are not planning to trade him. You wonder what the Dolphins are trying to do, and they're reaching out the Raiders on Josh Jacobs, and now they've reached out to the Colts about Taylor. Is this the right move to bring in a guy that is a cancer in the locker room that nobody in the locker room actually likes? He has not been getting along with the coaching staff. He's not got along with certain players on the offensive side of the ball. That's a problem. When you bring a cancer like that in your locker room and you have to deal with the emotions and a guy that wants a five-year, $13.5 million a year contract from that organization in Indianapolis that wants a first-round draft pick for him, that is alarming to me. And Tyreek Hill only wants to play another two more years. So that means you need to win soon. Because if he's saying that he doesn't want to play after the third year of his contract with the Miami Dolphins, that he wants to walk away from football, you have a certain amount of time to pull this off, just like the Jets do with Aaron Rodgers. They have a two-year, three-year window. So your window is starting to disintegrate. And Tui can't stay healthy. You're going to bring in Jonathan Taylor in your locker room. That's a cancer. You have Tyree Kill, which has been a cancer from Kansas City and now to the Dolphins. It's not fun when you're sitting there in a locker room and you're speaking over the court. Quarterback, that you believe you're a better player than the quarterback. So the quarterback's got to listen to you. You don't have to listen to the quarterback. The quarterback is the franchise. The quarterback is what leads this team to battle. And if you have a running back or a wide receiver that don't get along with anybody, how's that going to work? Well, from a football perspective, it makes a lot of sense for the Miami Dolphins. But I will warn the ownership of the Miami Dolphins, who have also had their own issues with their players that they brought in. You can't make these power struggles on these players that you've done in the years past and be able to get away with it in today's league because we've already seen what's falling apart with Washington. Now they have new ownership. The Raiders, a lot of players wanted to force their way out because of that, including Josh Jacobs, who you tried to trade for. And now the Colts are seeing that kind of power struggle with Jim Irsay now, a guy that's run his mouth too and has had his own issues with Andrew Luck, Peyton Manning at the end of his career, mismanaging that. And you don't want to have that kind of reputation happen in Miami because Miami has a lot of things to their advantage. They have a city that's very warm. All those players go down there in the summer and want to party down there. You already have two very talented wide receivers, which in today's game is very important. You have two who's a good quarterback when he stays healthy. So you have so many factors that go to your advantage. So do not mess this up if you're the Miami Dolphins and try to play games with Jonathan Taylor if you do decide to trade for him. It's a big mistake if Miami brings a personality like that in their locker room. You already have a bunch of personalities. You have a young coach, McDaniel, who looked like he knew what he was doing last year. Bring in Fangio. Pieces that can help you move forward as an organization. And now you're bringing in a Jonathan Taylor who has had problems in the locker room, has had problems getting along with players and teammates. That doesn't help Tua, who's coming back from a head injury. Everybody expects for him to play in a full season and become the franchise quarterback that they believe he should be. And Miami is one of those teams that they're going to have to build on this kind of style. And we've seen it work. The Seahawks won a Super Bowl with loud players. The Rams two years ago won a Super Bowl with loud players. You need to be able to make a culture that's still comfortable over that. Seattle, their ownership is very much liked because Mm. of that. And so are the Rams. And that's why a lot of players went there on one-year deal. So you have to develop that reputation if you're the Miami Dolphins because the way you've built your team has been based on that kind of philosophy like the Rams have been done. This whole Jonathan Taylor thing 
seems like it's going to grow legs, but this Corey Davis thing is even more shocking than anything. Corey Davis was very excited going into the season. They actually had a couple of parts on hard knocks and Jets one drive that he was very excited going into the season with this team, that this is a Super Bowl contender, and that he believes that they have all the pieces to go all the way. And then this story comes out. Corey Davis has announced his retirement after six NFL seasons at the age of 28. Davis had 273 catches for 3,879 yards, 17 touchdowns in his career. In 22 games with the Jets, Davis had 66 catches, 1,028 yards, and six touchdowns. Robert Sala said it was a pleasure to coach a player like Corey Davis. He is a true competitor on the field and was a tremendous positive influence in the locker room. We are grateful to Corey for all the hard work and dedication he put into this team, and we wish him and his family nothing but the best for his future. I believe that Corey Davis knew that the Jets were trying to get rid of his contract. Keep $10.5 million on their cap, so if they need to go after an offensive lineman or maybe go after Devontae Adams at the trade deadline, they're going to have enough money to fit Devontae Adams in their salary cap. But I don't know if that's going to happen. I know a lot of Jet fans want to believe it because they got Dalvin Cook and they think, we'll get everybody. The Corey Davis thing was surprising because why would you walk away from $10.5 million? That's crazy. I know he made a lot of money as an NFL player for six years, enough to be generational for him and his family. But to walk away from $10.5 million is very interesting. Top quarterback, an opportunity to really stick out like a sore thumb if he wants to be a free agent and make that money. And right now, he is retiring. That doesn't mean he can't come back. Now, if the Jets fall in a situation where they need a wide receiver, they could bring Corey Davis back. But I think there's a lot more information that will come out in the season with the whole Corey Davis thing. Was the Jets... Reaching out to him and saying, listen, we're not keeping you this year on the roster. We're going to let you go. If you want to retire, you retire as a Jet. We'll still give you your money under the table. I've heard a lot of stories with different NFL organizations and different owners that have paid players under the table, especially if they're retiring at a young age. Now, I'm not saying Woody Johnson did that, but this helps the Jets enormously. $10.5 million off that cap is a huge amount of money. The Jets are loaded at the wide receiver position. They have a tremendous amount of depth. They brought in Brownlee, and then they have Nicole Hardman, Garrett Wilson, Cobb. This helps Joe Douglas maneuver contracts, bring in an offensive lineman that they might need, or they could bring in another weapon, like a Devontae Adams, if he becomes available at the trade deadline. When we come back, Shea Otani has a torn UCL. He will not pitch again this year, and he probably won't pitch again next year. When we come back, we'll get into some Shea Otani conversation only on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Errol Marks, my co-host, Speedy Petey. Remember, kill the show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only on 103.9, the Ally News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Check out the Worldwide Sports Radio website by going to WorldWideSportsRadio.com. Check out all the shows throughout the week, including The Loudmouths, which airs every single Wednesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Tune in to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network by going to WorldWideSportsRadio.com. Shayo Otani trying to break Aaron Judge's American League record of 62. He was on his way, and then this story comes out that Shayo Otani's season, as far as pitching is concerned, is over. Shayo Otani suffers a torn UCL after his last start and will not pitch again this season. Otani had the same injury in 2018 and had 
had to get Tommy John surgery. Otani will still hit this season. There is no official decision yet on whether Otani will get Tommy John surgery, which he will. But if he does, he's likely to not be able to pitch in 2024. Otani became the only player in MLB history to have two seasons of 10 or more pitching wins and 40 home runs. Otani is 29 years old and was expected to get a contract between 550 and $600 million this offseason. And what does this do for Otani? Otani's still going to get that money. It won't be the Mets. It won't be the Yankees. It'll be a West Coast team. But there is no way that West Coast team is not going to force him to go get Tommy John surgery if they're going to pay him that kind of money. Even if he misses a year in 2024, which will make him 31 when he starts the next season as a pitcher, you still have four or five really good years for Shea Otani when it comes to hitting. And then you can move him to first base or outfield if you believe that his career ends up that way. This guy could still hit for average. This guy could still hit for power. I still worry to keep him on the field. Is the Angels making the playoffs? They're not. So why are you continuously keeping this guy on the field? I know you're trying to sell tickets. I know you want to put fannies in the seats, but that's not protecting your player. And if you decide to give him the $550-$600 million contract in the offseason and he accepts it, you're putting your franchise player at risk. I don't think this is a good move by the Angels. I think they should shut him down completely and move on next year. I would actually go a step further. Shohei Otani could go tell the Angels front office, I want to shut myself down for the season, and if you want to pay me more to keep me here, all right, fine, but you're going to have to pay a price in order to do this. I think he's still end up getting over $500 million. I hope that doesn't hinder his market because his market is still should be very strong because his numbers as a hitter are still top-notch in the league too. And all the teams that have been rumored to get him, the Dodgers, the Giants, and Seattle even, they can all three of those teams have leeway to have him not pitch, and I agree with you. They definitely should force him to get Tommy John surgery because we've seen the recovery rate be a lot better with that. Now, the second time is a lot harder than the first time, but still, Seattle has a ton of pitching depth where they don't have to worry about that kind of thing for one year. They have a great rotation. The Giants have always done well at developing pitchers and rebirthing a lot of veteran pitchers, and the Dodgers, they bring in all these random pitchers and these random hitters to make it work. He is not going to lose out on that $550-$600 million contract. He will still get that contract. There are teams out there that are willing to pay him, even if they miss a year with Shea Otani. If you're the Angels... And you believe, as an organization, you're going to be able to resign him and he wants to stay there. You sit him out. You tell him the season is over. We're not making the playoffs. We're not going anywhere. Let's get you healthy. Let's move forward. You miss next year. Maybe you come back at the end of the season and you play. You hold him out throughout the season when it comes to hitting, too. You don't want to put him in harm's way. You're paying this guy almost $50.5 million a year. You want to make sure that he is at 100%. You don't want to put him in harm's way where he gets hurt again and he could be out two or three years and you still got to pay this guy $50.5 million. The relationship was already fishy in the offseason as it was. Shohei Otani said if the Angels aren't playoff contenders this year, I'm out. Clearly they were in the first half of the season and then after the trade deadline they've fallen apart. I have a feeling the Angels are going to find a way to re-sign him. I see more with Mike Trout being traded in the offseason. I think that makes more sense. They can still get prospects for Mike Trout. He's not worth 
with the same amount of talent that he was maybe three, four years ago, but he's still a really great player. On the east side, I could see the Red Sox giving him that money. I could see the Mets trading for him and giving him that money. I could see a lot of different East Coast teams that will be willing to bring in a Mike Trout to be the face of their franchise or help out being one of the faces of their franchise. How this relationship could work with Shohei Otani and the Angels, and I mentioned this with Jacob deGrom too with the Mets, you don't want to have to be so cute with this kind of thing because it happened last offseason for the Mets when it happened with Jacob deGrom. It happened in 2021 when he started having those injury issues, and I don't think Jacob deGrom really trusted the Mets because of that, and you don't want to make that same mistake if you think you still have a shot to re-sign Shohei Otani, and based on the money that the Angels have spent, they should believe at this point that they have the shot. I think they do. They had to do that because they didn't trade him. I would have traded him at the time, too, at the trade deadline, but they went all in on this approach. They have a very rich owner. He's one of the richer owners in baseball, and if they have to, they'll give him $700 million. If they keep Otani, they're going to have to move Trout. If you're willing to give Otani that kind of contract, it's his team now. It's not Mike Trout's. As good as Shea Otani has been for two years, it's still Mike Trout's team. He is the face of the Angels, and he's one of the faces of baseball, even though if he was walking in the streets of New York, he probably wouldn't know who he is because he plays on the West Coast and you never get a chance to see him play. The questions are going to have to be answered. Do the Angels decide in the offseason to give him that contract and then tell him, we're not playing you next year, you're not hitting, you're not pitching, we want to get you at 100%, so we have you for the next four or five years as a dominant pitcher and a dominant hitter that's going to help us win a World Series, which we haven't done in ages. And we have seen a guy like Steve Cohen that will go out there and make the trade, and he doesn't care about the money. He doesn't care about what Trout's getting paid because if he brings him in and he's going to put fannies in his seats, protect a guy like Pete Alonso in that lineup, I can absolutely see the Mets making a trade in the offseason. Mike Trout, he just got married and he wants to move home. He wants to raise his kids where he used to live, and that was Philadelphia, that New Jersey-Philadelphia area. He did grow up as a Philadelphia Phillies fan, but he is not going to the Phillies because it's Bryce Harper's team. I do believe that a guy like Mike Trout still could be available and still has a little bit left in him where if he went to the Mets, it might rejuvenate him, might change everything and help the Mets move in the right direction. As Uncle Stevie said, they want to win a championship in the next couple of years. The organizations that are trading for him right now would be ones that are considered smart organizations on those West Coast. The Dodgers are very smart organizations. I think San Francisco's done a very good job with their new GM with Amani. They were an old team once they lost all their World Series guys, and they were supposed to be really bad for a while, and they never really were. And Seattle's grown into a very good front office, and they've built a nice young team, too. So I think that's the kind of thing that hurts them. That does not mean the Angels should not have tried to trade them, because the package that they would have gotten would have been insane. The Angels have had a tough time with prospects, and they have not been able to rebuild because they don't trade, and they make all these bad contracts. Uh, Mike Trout's been in the league for 13 years. His last four years have not been the best years. But even last year in 2022, he played in 119 games. He gave them 40 home runs and 80 RBIs and one stolen base. So he's not stealing bases like he used to. If you look at his last four years, he stole one. Two, one, two. The last time he hurt himself really bad, he slid into second base. I believe that Mike Trout still could put up the numbers. He's not going to play 162 games, but if you can get, like he did in 2022, 119 games, Mike Trout's worth it. If he's going to give you 40 home runs and 80 RBIs and he's going to hit close to 300, I'm taking him on my roster. If the Mets are willing to pay, and you're not going to have to trade away top-end prospects for Mike Trout anymore because he's not the same healthy player he was from 2000. 
2011 to 2018. But he's still a player that's going to hit close to 300. He's going to give you power numbers, and he's going to give you protection for Pete Alonso, which you haven't had over the last couple of years, which could give Pete Alonso a little more opportunities to smack home runs and get more RBIs. The organizational approach is going to have to change too, because you see teams now that are older all at once have a lot of trouble either staying that way for a long period of time, or when they do end up winning and they do end up succeeding, having to purge everything quickly. You saw that with the Nationals. They won their World Series two years later. They traded everybody. Athleticism is valued in the game, and that's why these teams are trying to get younger, and they're trying to build on younger core right away, and even pay the younger core right away. Now, it didn't work for, obviously, the Rays with Ronda Franco, because he's doing other stupid things off the field, but a lot of these other teams that are paying young players, like the Atlanta Braves, are looking like the best teams in baseball. And, and Mike Trout is not having a good year. He's played in 82 games. He has 18 home runs and 44 RBIs. I believe that Mike Trout will figure this out next year. So that's the whole kit and caboodle with the Shea Otani situation. When we come back, we will be talking to former Twins, Pirates, Marlins, Yankees, first baseman, and right fielder Garrett Jones, only on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Weekend Crutch. I'm your host, Errol Marks, my co-host, Speedy Petey. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Check out the Worldwide Sports Radio website by going to WorldWideSportsRadio.com. Check out all our shows throughout the week, including the Loud Mouths, every single Wednesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Great content, great guests, and great callers. All you got to do is go to WorldWideSportsRadio.com. You can check out all our shows throughout the week. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we are now, for the first time, ex-twins, Pirates, Marlins, and Yankees first baseman and right fielder, Garrett Jones. What's up, Garrett? What's up, guys? How you doing? You look good, man. You look healthy. That's good. I mean, you're retired. I can only imagine what retired life is as a baseball player. You've interviewed a lot of ex-baseball players that have their own thoughts to retirement. I mean, they have businesses, exercise companies, they have drink companies. I mean, they got everything. But before we get into that with you, how are you doing since retirement? What have you been doing? I'm doing all right. I'm just spending a lot of time with my kids. I have my son, he's 11, and then my daughter, she's three. Spent a lot of time with them and dipping my toes in some business things as well and got my slow pitch softball swing groove finally this past year. Took about two seasons to get that groove, but that's feeling good. So still getting on the field, running around, hitting some bombs and having a good old time. Hitting a softball and a baseball, two different things. But I'll never forget, last year I had surgery and my lawyer told me, do not get on a baseball field. And I didn't. I, I went to practice and I was swinging hitting the ball all over the field. Half of these guys couldn't even hit a slow ball and I'm sitting there I'm like hitting this thing is not as easy as it looks because everything that comes up must come down and when you're trying to swing and you're trying to get a hold of it with the barrel of the ball it's completely different than hitting a baseball. When you put all your power with the barrel of the ball it's going to go if you have the power 350 feet 400 feet. It's a lot different from playing softball to baseball. It took me several seasons of playing finally like okay I could be consistent up there instead of hitting top spin or, or high fly balls it would frustrate you i'd swing at a lot of bad pitches but finally it's like all right i got my groove swing now i know what i need to do i got my little hitch i got my timing down so now it's you're it's kicking finally got groove it's passing so i feel good about myself well you also are an ex-baseball player a professional baseball player and to say that you weren't that good you were a pretty good player you had 2924 at bats 734 hits 122 home runs you bat 251 your batting average is 
is probably just as good or even better than John Carlos Stanton that's making $38 million a year from the Yankees. If you were to ask me right now, I'd take you over John Carlos Stanton. Watching Stanton, I got to play with him in mm -hmm. Miami. And just watching him, freak of nature, mm -hmm. power-wise, the most power I've ever seen. I got to see Judge in spring training as well in 2015. And Stanton, the way the ball comes off his bat, I've never seen from anybody anywhere come close. The way the backspin he's able to get in, in any part of the field, it's ridiculous. So he's on that level. So for me to like watch him struggle, man, dude, just like goes through those spurts where he looks like he's swinging and you're like, what are you swinging at? But then it clicks and it's like Homer, Homer doubles, 120 mile an hour line drives off the bat consistently. He goes through those lulls where you're just like, man, dude, like just find a way. And because he could carry the team. I wish him well. He's a good dude. He works hard and just get that consistent swing back. And he could carry the friggin' Yankees all the way. The 2013 Pittsburgh Pirates, the team that broke that very long playoff drought that they had mm -hmm. 21 years. That whole season, those memorable moments throughout that year. What was that like for you? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. We brought in some guys. Unfortunately, my playing time went down toward the end of the year dealing with plantar fasciitis, but I didn't care. Like, it was so much fun. The city of Pittsburgh erupted. The blackout game we had with Cueto dropping the ball. I mean, there's so many memories and emotions during that season and leading up to the playoffs, man. It was electric. I can't even like really describe it. So memorable and something like Pittsburgh's such a part of home now for me to, to go back there. And all those memories, I go by the park. I was doing some AT&T Sportsnet game post game. So just going by the park, it's like those memories flash back in my head <laughs> with all the fans and people in the streets. It was just so much fun. We are talking to former Twins, Pirates, Marlins, and Yankees first baseman and right fielder Garrett Jones. In 2013, it was another Garrett that played with you, who plays for the Yankees right now, Garrett Cole, a guy that is having a fantastic year. Even though the Yankees absolutely stink, he's had a very good year for everybody that was attacking him last year with the spider attack thing, which was ridiculous because this has been going on forever. And for baseball to try to figure this out and clean up something like this, just like steroids, makes baseball look stupid. What was it like playing with Garrett Cole? Is Garrett Cole as good as everybody says he is? Yeah, I got to play with him at a very young age. He came up and he already had a maturity air about him that he carried himself with about his work ethic and he had the arm he's going out there throwing almost 100 miles an hour for nine innings every start so he had the stuff and then with pittsburgh he'd have some great starts and he'd get hit up he always assumed he would figure it out eventually but it, it took a little bit of time and go to houston got surrounded by some good pitchers Verlander, and he just clicked he always had the stuff i think just a little bit more development on pitching and location and now he's able to spot up his pitch as well and Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole has only had one losing season in his whole career. And that was in 2016. He was 7-10. That's the only season out of 11 seasons that he's had a losing mm -hmm. season. Garrett Cole is a great pitcher. And for a pitcher to stand out like that at 11 seasons, only have one losing season, says a lot about who he is as a pitcher. I'm tired of hearing haters on Garrett Cole. Oh, he cheats, he cheats. You've watched Major League. If you remember when Wild Thing was sitting in the locker room and they were asking, what is that? And he's telling them all these different things on his body and where he puts it. And he's says, why you put snot on a ball? And he says, I'll put anything on a ball. I don't have an arm like you. And this has been going on forever. And that movie came out in the 80s. It's ridiculous. Baseball, it's faster and everybody's watching it. And it's better right now. I think it sucks. These rule changes have hurt the game. And I don't care how fast the game is. Baseball is baseball. 
And if baseball takes four hours to finish, baseball takes four hours to finish. That's why the fans are paying that much money to go and watch the game. Because they want to sit there, even if it's boring, on television, and they're paying for what they're watching. I'm just tired of baseball. What are your thoughts to the rules? Do you like it? On the shift and the infield part, of my, I'd be a probably a 20 or 30 points higher career batting average. No question. I had that three-hole open a little bit more. Actually, as a fan, I don't mind it. I don't mind the speed of it as much. Uh, I think as a player, I'd probably not like it as much. I enjoyed the pace of the game as a player and, and kind of the chess game a little bit. It doesn't really bother me too much. I think at first it did, and then I've been watching some more games this year. I'm like, I can handle it. It's not the worst thing. You know what they should do is every home run over 450 feet, you should get a bonus run. <laughs> that should be a new rule. I like that. That's pretty cool. Mm. I think that adds some excitement. To a half a run. Yeah. So that you have For to earn run, yes. 450 feet half a run. But how many 450 feet home runs are there every single year? 20 of them? Exactly. So there's not many, but if, hey, you get a stand up there and you're down by four grand slam, you get that half run, you know. That's I mean, interesting. Might change a game or two here. One guy who returned to Pittsburgh this year after being a franchise icon for a while that you played with, Andrew McCutcheon. What was he like as a teammate? Yeah, Kutch was a freak athlete, man. I mean, he came up so fast and just a good dude, just a good quality guy that you want to be friends with on and off the field, hung out all the time. Got to play with him in Indianapolis and AAA for a while and he's just a good dude. Just a good dude to have in the game. Good family guy. I love him like a brother. We had a good time. We had a lot of ups and downs and he works hard and just a good guy for the game and good guy off the field. We are talking to former Twins, Pirates, Marlins, and Yankees first baseman and right fielder Garrett Jones. You played a little bit with the Yankees. What was it like playing in Yankee Stadium? What was it like playing in front of the Yankee fans? What was it like playing for the Yankees and playing in front of those great fans? I enjoyed it. Unfortunately, I only got on the field like once every two weeks or three weeks when either Teixeira needed a day off <laughs> or I was able to squeak in the right field. I wore number 33, so I remember it was pretty far into the season. I didn't get many stars in the outfield, but then I ran out there in right field and I hear, you're not Nick Swisher, we want Swisher. <laughs> so I started getting that chant and I'm like, oh, okay. But then I think I made a catch or something. I'm like, all right, you're all right, Jones. So it was all good, but I enjoyed it. I love it. Places like that, Wrigley and Boston, there's so much nostalgia around the stadium and the fans are great and it's just part of the game it just increases the energy in the field and the stadium and i love playing in yankee stadium i love it you played with all different teams but also some of the most unique like stadium alignments in your career you started with the twins one of the last years of the metrodome you go to pittsburgh that's a huge ballpark a pitcher's park then you go to the yankee stadium as the obvious and miami with the big ballpark so you have a preference on stadiums that you like to play in and do you, do you have a favorite even a visiting stadium too pnc park is beautiful i love the skyline at pnc right field for me was a good shot I like PNC a lot. Probably, though, one of my favorite parks was Wrigley Field. I saw the ball well there, for one. Felt like the ball carried out there well. And then the smells, the atmosphere of that stadium, I just loved. I'm growing up in Chicago. I actually grew up a Sox fan in Southside. Uh-huh. But playing at Wrigley, it was just so much fun. I knew a lot of friends and family would come there. And it felt like I was just back playing high school ball in the high school field. With the fans and people yelling at you, I smile like the whole time I'm there. Even though I bang my head on the dugout every time I'm there. Going up to the clubhouse would stink. I mean, I I think they remodeled it now, but I loved all of it, so it was part of it. What ballpark stood out the best? And where did you see yourself when you stepped on a baseball field in the major leagues? Did you think you were going to be a better player than you turned out to be? Or did you think you were the player that you were? 
Pittsburgh was great. New York was great. I love playing at Met Stadium as well. St. Louis was great. All these parks were, there's like something special about each park. Philadelphia, I love Philadelphia's park. The field's beautiful. The infield's yeah. beautiful. The cheesesteaks in the clubhouse. <laughs> I'd eat about two of those <laughs> Those are so good. Oh my God. And I get one to go for my room after the game. So I'm crushing a cheesesteak at 11.30, 12 o'clock at night. I'd be doing the same thing. Oh, it's so good. Each stadium has its own little special piece about it. But I always thought coming up, I mean, it took me nine, I was in the minor leagues for what, eight years before I got called up with the twins in Cleveland. At the time I was close, but they tell me I strike out too much. And I was like, can I make it? You know, I knew I had the ability, but can I be consistent enough? And you know, all those things and got up there for a short time. So it was like, you know, I made it. At least I could say I made it. You were in the major leagues for a little while. You didn't just make it. You were a pretty good player when you did get called up and you had decent seasons. What was it like getting that call up for the first time and having the opportunity to know that you're going to get a chance to play on a baseball, a major league baseball field? It was very emotional. I called my parents and I was crying. They were crying and everything that runs through your head, sacrifices, the bad years, the tough times, dealing with some injuries and, and just all that stuff. And I think about all of your friends and family that sacrificed things. I had a coach in high school that would let me go hit at his indoor facility owned and just let me beat up his iron mic machines till they broke. <laughs> stuff like that. It's like, those are the type of people that helped me get there. And you just start thinking about all those things. You're very thankful. You feel blessed. And it was very, very emotional. It was very, like, I couldn't even hit, I think, my first at bat. I was facing Paul Bird, not throwing hard, thumber. The bat felt like a wiffle ball bat. I didn't even know what to do. Him. So that took me a while to, like, control my emotions. I was just like, man, I was just, like, so amped up. I was up in the Twins 61 days. The next year, I got designated. Nobody picked me up. So, and then I was in Rochester for another year. So I was in Rochester for like about four years combined. And the next year signed as a free agent. I almost signed with the Cubs. I ended up signing with Pittsburgh. I went into that year, kind of a chip on my shoulder, like I could do this and was confident in myself more than I've ever been and went to spring training and Eric Hinsky and Adam LaRoche both had injuries. So I got a bulk of the playing time. I was able to finally have a good side of all my spring trainings. I'm probably about a 190 career spring training hitter. And that spring was like my best spring I've ever had, 2009. And so they ended up calling me up. They made some trades later on. They called me up. It was at the end of June. And all she wrote from there. You had really good seasons. 2009 was pretty good. 2010 was pretty good. 2012 was pretty good. Your batting average was 274, the highest it's ever been. You had seasons that really stood out. To play in the major leagues, it's not easy. To have 27 home runs and 86 RBIs, that's a pretty good season as a major league player. Baseball is not that easy. I couldn't imagine standing in a box and you see a pitcher throw a slider going almost 100 miles per hour and expect to hit it. I saw a slurf. I played in a semi-pro men's league a couple of years ago in Nassau, and I'll never forget this kid who was, I think, drafted by the Twins. He was playing in the league, and he was throwing a slurf. It was like an 88-mile-per-hour slurf. I said, I can hit this. I never strike out. I've never seen anything like it. It looked like a curve, but it dipped like a slider. I have no idea what it was. And I said, what the hell is that? I couldn't hit it the whole game. The third time at bat, I was like, you know what, coach? I'm bunting the ball. And I barely could get a hold of a bunt with it, too. It was unbelievable. One of the scariest where I thought I'm in trouble here was when Chapman first came up with the Reds and he's blowing, he's warming up against us. <laughs> he's warming up 99. Well, the radar gun's 99, 100. Warm-up pitch. We're like, oh my God. Last warm-up's like 104. Mm. I'm like, you gotta be kidding. Touch. He was up before me and I'm on deck just like, how am I? At that time he came up, he's like, oh, he's kind of wild. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, great. Now I want to hear that. And so I'm just like, Lord, if it's my time, like if this hits me in the ear, I'm out. I don't know what to do. So I was like trying to psych myself out to like, 
like, who cares? It was all a mental game going up there, my first at bat against him. And of course, he struck me out, and that thing was coming in. It was unbelievable. I actually got a hit off him. I think he struck me out every at bat, except I got a broken back grounder one time, and then I was able to get a double off the wall. I didn't hit it. He, I, he threw it towards my bat where I was swinging, and it was able to go off the wall. When he yeah. came up, his strikeout rate, I forget the sample, is the highest in MLB history. Any of that is not surprising. I think just pure intimidation, too. I mean, the dude's huge. Yeah. The dude's like 6'6". Six, six. He's monstrous on the mound, and then he's throwing 103 miles an hour. How everyone's yeah. doing it, so it's like not as trendy as it once was. He kind of started that whole trend. That is true. Every time I see him, I'm like, the guy, who's the guy from the Cardinals? He's throwing Jordan Hicks, yeah. He just got traded, so. Every team has a guy in the bullpen getting up there. And going 100 out. miles per yeah, hour. Yeah, the Royals had one, too. Rest in peace, Jordan Aventura that could do that, so he did it pretty mm-hmm. consistently. And then the Mets tried to do it with Jacob DeGrom, and then he threw way too much and blew his arm out. You're seeing all these new pitchers. David Cohn used to have, like, the circle change, and then there was the knuckle curve ball. And people in those days were pitching a slurve. Now they have, before you step on a field, you can go in the back, and they have, like, a pitching cage where you can pick the pitcher that you want to face against. It throws the ball exactly where he throws the ball, and it's like you're playing against him where you could practice against him. It's really unique. They didn't have this in the 70s and the 80s. Now, all of a sudden, you could face Garrett Cole in a cage, and you're not really facing him. You're facing a machine. Tell us a little bit about the transition of baseball when you were playing and now where you see it to be now. There's so much analytical data with the spin rates, with this and that, and I haven't kept up with it totally just because I'm just like, that's too much. There's too much information. But as a hitter, we would have the scouting report before every series, go over the starters, go over the bullpens, what their tendencies are, and you get a location where they like to throw their pitches. You get a wealth of information. I mean, as a hitter, you can try to figure out everything and sit on a pitch. And and for me, it was, all right, what's his best fastball? All right, he throws the sink. Most of the time when I was coming up, it was like two seamers down and away to me, coming up and in hard. It helps, too, as you face these guys more than once. It's like, okay, you see that you pick up their release point. You've seen their stuff. Mm-hmm. No matter how good it is, you've seen it. You start making mental notes. You see the timing. You figure out timing. There's certain guys, like, you figure out, and there's certain guys that weren't very good starters, but I would have trouble with or a, or a different guy would crush him. It's just, like, timing, deception, all those things play a factor in the, in the game. And they have that digital screen where you can pull up Garrett Cole and he throws his pitches. I haven't faced anything like that, but have the virtual reality as well as, right. as another tool to practice it. And it's better than nothing. You got to look at it as another tool in the tool belt to try it out, see how it is, see what, take a look at it. But once you get in the game, you face them, you've seen them. That's a tremendous advantage as a hitter to see a guy more than once right. and to constantly face them year in, year out. Because they're making adjustments, but it's just like their stuff is their stuff. They may pitch you a certain way. They may hit their spots that day. I remember facing Lance Lynn a bunch. I knew what he was going to throw every time. It was just a matter of if he could locate or not. If he just left his two-seamer out over the plate just enough, I'd just take a line drive to the left because I knew he didn't like coming in or if he came in, it was a ball up and in or four-seamer or if he tried to backdoor slide or two strikes. And he, he would just did that every time. Even if I went three for four, I'd be like, okay, he's going to try something different. Nope. He would just stick with the plan. And then going to Japan, I got to play two years in Japan. So after my Yankee season, I got designated at the end of that year and Japan came calling quick. They offered a great contract. We couldn't refuse. Two-year deal. I was getting a little older. Still felt good, but I didn't get many at-bats with New York. So I was like, let's go. Let's do this. It'll be fun. <laughs> and Japan was great. Fans were amazing. 
baseball was so competitive. Man, we practiced and I got in the best shape of my life. We ran, but it was a learning curve there just because the splitters, shootos, they can pitch. They don't like the radar guns, but with their motion is, they hide the ball, they get real low. I got sent down to like get my timing back. It was challenging as well. You were there right after your Yankees career. That was 2016 and 2017. Was the hype around Shohei Otani, who came to the major leagues in 2018, what was it like from the Japanese perspective? I got to face him in spring training. He struck me out throwing 102, but everyone's like, you got to watch his batting practice. So I'm like, okay, so watch his batting practice. And he's right up there with, I wouldn't say quite Stan, but he's up there with Judge and name the top five power guys. He's probably top five. Hitting bombs. And then you got a guy pitching like that. Nobody does that. I don't think people realize it's just so unbelievable the level he's doing pitching and hitting at, at the major league level. Able to do both. Able to go out there, throw a nine inning shutout, and then the doubleheader, it's a home run in that yes. game. This is ridiculous. I went online and bought so many of his baseball cards. I'm like, this is, dude's like better than Babe Ruth. Yeah, I got to meet him. He's a humble, great dude, humble guy, big guy. He's a big dude for uh, a Japanese guy. Yeah. Not that big. He was killing over there and he's doing the same thing here. Who's your favorite player to hit against and who was the hardest person to see the ball and hit? I struggled big time off Strasburg. He had a great two-seam fastball changeup pitch. Mm. I could not pick it up. Even if he told me it was coming, I'd still like be lunging forward and getting fooled and he owned me. And then I remember I didn't play for like two weeks with the Yankees and I ended up starting to share a, he wanted a day off or was hurting. Sonny Gray struck me out three times, almost four times. I mean, it would have been four if I didn't choke up halfway up to the handle and just flick it out there. But he threw me like six different curveballs. I'm not even kidding. It was like, get me over slurve 12 six or hard slider and they're all like hard and he spotted 97 98 on me and i was just like i can't do anything with this guy <laughs> i remember that was like one of the nastiest pitchers i faced and then you remember doug davis of course yes, yes. He about 84 in a radar gun but it looked like 97 coming in he'd shoot out of nowhere out of like his ear hole or neck and it was just be there he would jam me with like 82 little two seamer i couldn't figure him out either he owned me. garrett we really appreciate the time we would love to get you on the show again you got a great personality and you were a pretty good baseball player you put it all together 734 hits 122 home runs 251 career hitter 400 rbis 28 stolen bases your slugging percentage 445 ops 757 they're pretty good numbers and i have a zero era well. <laughs> oh you had a position player pitching <laughs> nice don't forget that. that 2013 pirates team must have had a lot of these good personalities between mccutcham you had and your teammate michael McHenry was fantastic we had him on our show about four months yes. ago he was oh, one of our favorites I remember that team like we hung out the team would go out after games I mean we would go out to eat road trips typically I feel like most teams I've been on it's like you kind of get groups here groups there occasionally you match up but that group we were together everywhere we went out I mean we laughed we cry together we talk about everything we'd hang out and brew in our hotel rooms I mean we just did life together that year and all the wives got along and I feel like you lose sight of the value of that on a team because baseball is such a long season there's so many ups and downs if you're on a bad team or you're with a bad group it just makes it the season that much longer but when you're on a good team with good people that you could laugh during a tough time you're just always laughing and keeping the spirits high that team camaraderie goes a long long way throughout a long baseball season. Don't forget about Mets legends Neil Walker and Starling Marte. Oh, yeah, Neil Walker, baby, yeah. He was my roommate in Indy when we both got called up. Another see, good dude. You can see what's going on with the Yankees. The camaraderie is not very good, and you can see that it's affecting the clubhouse. It's affecting a lot of players, and even players that are not even part of the organization is complaining right now because there's no longer part of the organization trying to throw other people under the bus. I'm trying I to completely bash analytics. Yeah. We really appreciate the time, as always. Keep up the good work, and we'll get you on very soon. 
soon after the baseball season see what you think. Who do you have winning the World Series this year, quickly? I got the Braves. I think we all have I the Braves. I was drafted by Atlanta in 99. <laughs> I was there for three short seasons. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's terrible. Let's get rid of him. You should have just gotten the time machine. I mean, they would have signed you after your rookie year to an eight-year contract. <laughs> There you go. Well, oh, thank you, you guys. I appreciate you, man. Thank you very much. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining us because I know you're a busy guy. And keep up the good work, bud. Anytime. Thank you. Have a good one. Ladies and gentlemen, Garrett Jones. Uh, fantastic interview. Yeah, proposing new rules, too. Very interesting. 450-foot home runs or more should count for an extra half a run. There you go. Uh, probably could help the Yankees if they knew how to get on base and didn't strike out a ton. Anything could help the Yankees right now. Them having an extra half a run because John Carlos Stanton hits the bull 450 feet could only help the Yankees not make it worse. When we come back, we will be talking to Apollo again. Money line mania only on the weekend crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Weekend Crouch. I'm your host, Errol Marks, my co-host, Speedy Petey. Remember, you can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time, only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Check out the Worldwide Sports Radio website by going to WorldWideSportsRadio.com. Check out all our shows throughout the week, including the Sports Loudmouths, which airs every single Wednesday and Thursdays at 9 p.m. You can check out our shows live and in color throughout the week. And now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we call this segment Money Line Mania. This is Money Line Mania. Which has had the crew. What is going on? How's it going, guys? I hit 20 straight winners. Now I'm going for 30. Consistent, 74%. I'll be satisfied when I get it up to 8. Did you see Spain? Yeah. Easy win. I you guys from the beginning of the sleeper in the tournament was Spain. Spain at 14 to 1. Now I'm going to give you my Super Bowl predictions. I was high on the Bengals. I still like the Bengals. About to win the Super Bowl, San Francisco 49ers. I checked three specific teams. People are laying off. Money not rolling on them at all. When I saw the Eagles not winning the Super Bowl, the Bills not winning the Super Bowl, and the Kansas City Chiefs not winning the Super Bowl, even the Bengals, the Bengals are steady at 11-1. to 1. If the San Francisco 49ers have a healthy quarterback with the defense, and remember last week, my exhibition picks only missed one, the commander. San Francisco, first week, they're playing Pittsburgh. In yes. Pittsburgh, spread is two and a half. Easy San Francisco. This game is going to be over by half time. This one on money line. Baltimore Ravens to beat the Texans. We'll move on to the Monday night. All of a sudden, I'm starting to see the Bills line dropping. It was a two and a half. I dropped down one and a half. The Bills odds right now, 1.98. Bills even the 1.86, and they're dropping minus one and a half. I love the Jets in that game, 2.1. And the Jets, plus one and a half. Even though it all appears that Buffalo making it easy to spread, they just got to score by two. But somebody's putting the money on the Jets. And the Jets are two to one. That's pretty good value. Definitely headed in that direction. I think definitely the hype of the Jets now. Now, throughout the training camp process has definitely pushed that towards. The Bills are becoming like what the Chiefs were last year, kind of that quiet team that doesn't have as much flash because now they've become like, okay, they've been there before type thing. The Bills, last year people were talking Bills. This year the people are laying off the Bills. Nobody believes the Bills can do anything. Monday night, the Bills might even lose to the Jets by two touchdowns. You never know, the line changes. Anything can happen, an injury. But the way it looks right now, I see the Jets winning by two touchdowns. Why is it the Bills 
bills are such a big favorite. The bills all of a sudden are down from minus three down to minus one and a half. They're telling you take the bills, but the money's on the jet. Because why is the spread so low? It's becoming like Dallas is playing the Giants. Dallas going into New York. Dallas at 1.59. And the Giants are at 1.56. All the money shifting on Dallas. Are the Giants really good? They're improved talent-wise from last year, but they still lack a couple things. Wide receivers are a concern. A lot of rookies and new free agent signings. Just a lot of the same types. Their defense, I think, got better. They brought in a linebacker in Okereke that's played well. They've drafted a first-round corner that looks really good this preseason. But the Giants' schedule from where it was last year is going to be a lot harder. And I know Chaz does this a lot. He looks at a track record, a pattern of something. The Giants play the Cowboys in week one a lot, and Dallas has won a lot of those matchups. But at 1.59, the Giants at 2.56, I wouldn't touch that game. I think the Tampa Bay is going to go into Minnesota and pull the upset. I love the modern move. Now getting into some soccer. Have you seen the improvement of Saudi Arabian soccer? Saudi Arabian soccer compared to the MLS? Day and night, big countdown there. Al Hilal is going to win. Al Hilal is a powerhouse. Neymar might be playing in that game. This team is going to be unstoppable. Last week, I hit two plays and I missed one. That Manchester lost. I got his goal, so I went like 4-1. Yes. This week, English soccer. Newcastle is playing at home to Liverpool. I like in that game both teams to score. I like Newcastle to win and I like you And I also like AC Milan to win in the Italian. Milan's improved. But my big play this week, I don't care if it's at 1.2. Manchester City is still a team to beat English Soccer League. And they're playing against Sheffield United. Manchester City can win their goals in that game. I can see them scoring for going to happen. They just got promoted and they're playing against Manchester City. Now Manchester City going into Sheffield United. Even though they They've lost a lot of players. Last week, they completely dominated Newcastle. Newcastle is not a push And this week against Liverpool, they're going to show it. They're going to score a goal. Game's going over. Newcastle's going to win this game. Last week, Newcastle was dominated. This week, Manchester City. Manchester City's going to that game. Al Hilal on that's a top play. AC Milan game is a top play. Manchester City's a good bet. 1.2 is pretty low. That's what I like in soccer. But I'm more into the NFL. The Seahawks look pretty good. Minus 4.5. The Eagles are minus 4.5, but I don't like that. I'm I'm surprised that Green Bay Packers playing against the Bears, it's minus two. But the game here that catches my eyes, and I think this game's going to be a blowout, is Jacksonville playing the Colts, minus four. The biggest spread of the weekend, I see this a blowout, is the Baltimore Ravens against Houston, minus ten. If you look at the Tampa Bay game with the Vikings, the spread is minus six and a half. I think Tampa might even win straight out. I watched Tampa Bay when they went and beat the Jets, and I watched Minnesota play Seattle. The Vikings are very weak. At the running back, at the receiving court, they got Jefferson. Their defense gives up a lot of yardage. If the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Baker Mayfield, that's named the starter, if he plays a solid game, I think that Tampa can be upset. An intriguing team, the Minnesota Vikings, is one team that I do not trust giving points to. Like, if you look at the Thursday nighter, the Chiefs line, and the line six and a half. I'm not going to play that. I don't know the lines to see. The game of the week, September the 11th, that's the game. The Jets, I was talking to one of my friends today. He told me the Jets' defense can stop the Bills. It's how Aaron Rodgers plays. The Jets are loaded, and people are going to be surprised with this game. Whoever thinks that the Bills are going to hold them away, I wouldn't be surprised if the Jets win by 14 points. I like the Jets. I like the Bears. I like them. That's the play that I like the most this week. One final prediction. The Baltimore Ravens win the division at 3.6. Ooh, so you think the Bengals will go to the Super Bowl as a wild card? Is that what I'm hearing? The only team 
that could upset the Cincinnati Bengals from winning the Super Bowl is the San Francisco 49ers. So far, when it comes to a soccer, I'm 6-0 in tournaments. NFL, I think, uh, past four Super Bowl winners. I'm between those two. I still haven't made up my mind because what you said, Brock Purdy is playing next week and he's rushed back. That's a delicate position. So we got two teams that I love a lot to put money on. The Bengals, Joe Burrow is hurt, and Brock Purdy is injured, coming back a little sooner. But if they go into Pittsburgh and they beat the Pittsburgh and he has a great game, the odds going to drop. So that's what I like, guys. We're getting down to the baseball playoffs. But one thing I realized in the baseball playoffs, Texas, their bullpen is pretty weak. They've been blowing games. Mm-hmm. Number yeah. eight is not the same team. Now, basically, we're not looking at a clear cut who's going to go. The, the Blue Jays are the biggest disappointment. Yeah, there's no obvious one in the American League anymore. National League, I think it's really just Braves or Dodgers. The Phillies have a small chance, I guess, but the American League, you're right, is wide open. If I would take a team, you know who I would take? I would take the Baltimore Orioles okay. all the way. No, the Orioles are very well-rounded. They definitely can do it. That's it. Always a pleasure getting down to the NFL. We can talk about more things. I love the NFL as much as I love soccer. Yes. And now there's no soccer tournament till the summer. Thank you, Paolo, for joining yeah. us tonight. Always a pleasure. When we come back, we have a little bit of college football as Reggie Bush files a lawsuit against the NCAA. And Austin Matthews gets his four-year, $53 million extension. No, it's not from Phoenix. It is from the Maple Leafs. When we come back, it seems like they keep their guy. When we come back... Back here on the Weekend Crunch. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Errol Marks, my co-host, Speedy Petey. Remember to listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time, only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Check out the World Wide Sports Radio website by going to WorldWideSportsRadio.com. Check out all our shows throughout the week, including the Loudmouth. Check us out in our live coverage every single Wednesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. World Wide Sports Radio.com. Reggie Bush has begun to reapproach in the news as now he is filing a lawsuit against the NCAA. ESPN's Kyle Bangura reports that Reggie Bush is filing for a defamation lawsuit against the NCAA. The lawsuit is based on the NCAA maliciously attacking his character through completely false and highly offensive statements that was widely reported in the media damaging his reputation. Bush is requesting to have all his records and accomplishments restored, including his Heisman Trophy that was taken away from Bush is questioning many NCAA violations he was targeted for that are no longer violations due to the NIL rules with college athletes. Bush also said he would like to return to a USC football game and to be a part of the program once they move to the Big Ten, but will not do that until he gets his records and his Heisman Trophy back. I feel bad for a guy like Reggie Bush. And I respect Reggie Bush because Reggie Bush, if you look at his college career, he is one of the greatest running backs to ever play in college football. And unfortunately, when you look at who he is and what happened to him with USC, and yes, he took money. Yes, he got paid for obviously using his name. And this has been going on for a long, long time. Johnny Manziel had a lot of problems because he was making money throughout his junior year. Him and his friends were making money off his signings, his jersey sales, signing autographs, going to these parties. And then obviously everybody thought that he was making 
making money under the table and also said that his family was rich, which was not true. That was said by his friend, who supposedly at one point wasn't his agent, but was his representative. Reggie Bush doesn't come from a very wealthy family. And playing and going to USC and Pete Carroll and with that team, you can argue that could have been one of the greatest assembled football teams of the last 30 years. Winning back-to-back championships is not easy. Going to back-to-back championships is not easy. And Reggie Bush had everything to do with it. I've always thought players should be making money off their name. The fact that the NIL deal came and and came a little bit late than anybody thought. They made movies about it on quarterbacks and players fighting for these rules to be changed. Everybody keeps talking about these players getting college educations. Half these players don't even finish their college educations because they need to make money and they have to jump right into the NFL before their senior years. Reggie Bush obviously was attacked by the NCAA. Obviously, the NCAA didn't like Reggie Bush. He was very soft-spoken when he was over there at USC. He had a lot to say about the NCAA when he was trying to have one of those seasons, which he did, winning the Heisman Trophy. And I also believe when you look at somebody like Reggie Bush and you look at the NCAA as whole, Bryce Young, his final season in the NCAA with the Alabama Crimson Tide, he made like 4 or $3 million that year. And people were complaining about these players bringing that kind of cash. Dabo Sweeney was one of those guys. Nick Saban, who's making $13 million a year, these coaches making all that money. They can make money off their players' names, but the players can't make money off their own. And the NCAA had to change it. So when you hear this story, I was expecting Reggie Bush after this NIL deal broke that one of these years that Reggie Bush was going to go and he was going to attack the NCAA and try to get his Heisman Trophy back. He's not welcome at USC anymore because supposedly he cheated. They took away their championship. They took away wins just because he took money to help his family out. You're not betting on football. You're not betting on basketball. You've seen these stupid stories that 30 for 30 trying to attack the mafia at the time that the mafia was trying to destroy college basketball with Boston College. And now you look at the way college football, college basketball is now. Now you can actually pay a player to transfer. You could say, hey, listen, I'm going to give you $4 million if you transfer to my team, to my school. And that's how guys like Arch Manning, how do you think Arch Manning decided to go to Texas over Alabama, LSU, or Georgia? He was looking at all those schools. He decided to go to Texas. Why? Money. It's all about money. Arch Manning doesn't need the money. Both his uncles are very rich. His father does pretty well. He runs a business. I don't think the Manning family has any problems making money. Reggie Bush doesn't come from money. He went into the NFL. NFL, he was a top three pick. Did he have a good NFL career? No, he didn't have a good NFL career. He fought injuries. The biggest story about Reggie Bush when he was in the NFL was he was dating Kim Kardashian for such a long time. Reggie Bush should fight for his Heisman Trophy. He should fight the fact that the NCAA ruined him, took everything away from him, probably hurt him for being the number one pick. Mario Williams was the number one pick that year. Everyone was shocked. It hurt him. That's why he didn't go number one. That's what I believe. He probably Probably would have went number one. He's one of the greatest running backs to come out of college football. And he would have went number one if it wasn't for that whole story taking money under the table. You look at a point for Reggie Bush to get leveraged now with everything else that's going on across college football, too. And there's a lot of coaches really striving on the transfer portal. We've seen, obviously, Deion Sanders do that. We've seen Miami do that since Mario Cristobal has gone over there. I think their quarterback, like Bryce Young, has a big contract, too. Coaches make money by recruiting players. They recruit these teams, and that's why they keep their jobs. If they're recruiting right, they're winning championships. They're 
are winning ball games. It's the way their names and who they are, this is why their recruitments want to come and play there. Look at Deion Sanders. He goes to Colorado and 200 recruits want to transfer to him. That program was in the dumps. <laughs> now they're going to be revitalized just because of that, no matter what conference they end up going to. Why do you think some of these coaches get to the places they want to be? Because they start from the bottom, they work from the top, they build these schools. As we see Jackson with Deion Sanders, he did it for two or three years over there, and then he moves up to Colorado, and he gets a chance to do it on a, a high-standard Division One team. And he's going to get an opportunity, if he does well with Colorado, to move to maybe LSU or Florida State or Miami and gets a job over there. If it is Deion Sanders, prime time, the coach of the team, and it's going to help recruit those players, what do you think those players are going to do? And I think the other problem is you have too many coaches that are seeming like they're objecting to the whole concept, too, which these coaches are going to have to learn to evolve, no matter how much they're going to be able to get paid, because then you're going to lose out on those recruits, too. Dabo Sweeney was the big one to complain, but there were other ones, too. We've heard James Franklin at Penn State complain about this kind of thing. Uh, a couple other coaches throughout the Big Ten were complaining about these new rules. They're going to have to evolve if they want to be able to get these recruits and get these transfers, because the transfer portal is very powerful. We just heard Lane Kiffin about a month ago say it's the worst thing to happen to college football. Have fun getting players at Ole Miss, where it's already a very stiff competition in the SEC recruiting Speaking wise. of Lane Kiffin, do you think Lane Kiffin earned the right to be a head coach in Division I football? Come on, guys. They actually do make money off the player's name. If they recruit the right player and he comes to that team and he's bringing them a chance to play for a big ball game and maybe a national championship, you don't think he's making money off his name? I'm not talking literally. He's not making money off every single autograph that he puts out there in the stores or going to trade card dealership, whatever the hell they do over there to make money. When you look at what these football players were not making for the years that they were going to school and they weren't showing up to class and they were just getting passed right through because they're superstar football players. They have to stay there for at least three years, three years before they can go and enter the NFL draft. How are they supposed to support their families when they come from nothing? That's what makes Reggie Bush's situation tricky, too, because you look at the way that they ended up having the recruit at the time, too. It wasn't like it is now where you have all these interviews. We were talking about with the blind side last week, like how many interviews did he have like with all these powerful schools? Yeah, maybe they had some, maybe they had some access, but it wasn't the same way as these hype that you get out of high school now with Arch Manning and these other top recruits, Johnny Manziel. Like, they're not getting those types of things with somebody like Reggie Bush. And Reggie Bush, again, was that dominant prospect that he was supposed to be. And he's one of the best players in college football history because of that. And now he's coming out at a good time to be able to get that recognition, get that awards back, and most importantly, get the money back that the NCAA has deprived him of. And it seems like he singled him out, too, which is not good. They've been doing this for a long, long time. If there's a particular player that the NCAA don't like in college basketball, college baseball, and even college football, they find a way to try to burn their names. And look what happened to Reggie Bush. Reggie Bush lost a lot of money not going number one. 10, 13, 14 million dollars if he went number one and Mario Williams went number two. And because of this whole scheme of making money throughout his name, there's no NIL deals, the NCAA found a way to burn his name. To burn his name out of USC. After winning two national championships. After doing what he did and winning a Heisman Trophy and having one of the greatest running back years in college football history. The Maple Leafs gave Austin Matthews a new four-year $53 million extension. The extension will begin following next season and goes until 2028. Matthews becomes the highest paid player, making $13.25 million per year, surpassing Nathan McKinnon. And by the way, I really thought that Matthews was going to wait and either go to Phoenix and he'd be the first player to make $15, $16 
$15 million a year. I think they got him on the cheap. 13.25, yes, it's the highest contract in NHL history, but if he went to Phoenix, he would have made a lot more money than that. The Lightning also gave Brandon Hagel an eight-year, $52 million contract. Hagel had 27 goals in 2021 and 30 goals last season and had a career-high 64 points in his first full season with Tampa. The Rangers signed Alexis Lafreniere to a two-year deal worth about $4.65 million. Lafreniere was a restricted free agent, meaning they had to sign him or trade him within the next month before training camp started. So Austin Matthews, I'm so surprised that he took that contract. I think that if Phoenix won the lottery and they got Connor Bedard, I don't think he signs that contract. I think he waits until next offseason and then signs a contract with Phoenix and he goes and plays with Connor Bedard for the next 10 years. Now that Connor Bedard is going to Chicago, you look at this move by the Maple Leafs, it looks like by the time Austin Matthews becomes a free agent again, he's 32 years old. I say he's a Maple Leaf for the rest of his career. You look at the way that NHL contracts have gone up nicely, but again, not as much as you would think either. I agree with you. I think he would have definitely gotten more money from a younger team that has the leeway to be able to push for that guy to be the new face of the franchise type too. If it wasn't Arizona, maybe it's a team like the Kraken who aren't really paying anybody that had a nice year this year. Look at the Western Conference this year besides Vegas. Like, they're all the surprises that were in the playoffs this year. Like, a lot of those teams can pay Austin Matthews maybe close to that $15 million mark that would have surpassed McKinnon's contract by over $2 million. So, that's what's interesting. I guess likes it with Toronto enough. They still trust maybe they made some progress finally winning a playoff series this year. We'll see down the road. Wow. Yeah, they finally did it after all these collapses and blown leads. I like Hagel. He's a guy that I would love the Islanders to try to scoop up. As you should, yeah. That's not going to happen. He just signs an eight-year, $52 million contract with the Lightning, so he's going nowhere. And he probably retires with the Lightning. That was another team like the Lightning, too. Like, the Lightning got rid of a lot of their older players because they saw the way the transition in the league is with a faster game now, too. And, yes, you obviously still need defensive goaltending, too, and some level of physicality, but they're building a lot more on the team speed. And a lot of those guys that were on the kid line for their first cup team and all that have been traded, too. And they were able to lock up Hagel before his contract would have gotten higher, where he could have had more 30-plus goal seasons. The Rangers didn't pay Alexis Lafreniere what he probably would have gotten paid if he was actually any good when he was drafted as the number one pick. But I'm very surprised that the Rangers even gave him anything. I would have either traded him or let him go. He just doesn't fit there. Now, maybe a guy like LaViolette will figure it out and maybe get him to play a little bit better in his scheme and the way he likes to play. But I don't know if Lafreniere has the confidence to be the player that everybody thought he he was going to be. They compared his skills when he was drafted to guys like Sidney Crosby, and he's not anywhere close to Sidney Crosby. I can't even name the last number one pick that was drafted that has turned out as bad as Lafreniere. Yeah, it's probably Nail Yakupov from Edmonton. I mean, that was 2012. So if it's been a long time. The Oilers had that run of where they were getting all the lucky first round picks that they got. They ended up getting Connor McDavid, which obviously now is the best player in the league. But mm. they had a great run of that before them that didn't pan out. Even he had a couple good years with Edmonton, but even Taylor Hall kind of underwhelmed. How would you like it if you're Connor McDavid and you see Austin Matthews get almost two million dollars more than you and you're the best player in the world you are the best player in the world by far it's not even close and Austin Matthews is making more money than you are I wouldn't be happy yeah you wonder if that could be a potential leverage it definitely is same thing happened with Wayne Gretzky and why he was traded to the LA Kings because they didn't have the money to pay him the million dollars that he wanted yeah Edmonton is running out of their chances too because they seem like they're in the same spot every year and they're just having the same issues now their defense on paper got a little bit better this year but it still didn't help them in the playoffs they have 
have the two best players in the world. Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid are the two best players in the world, and it's not even close. It's not even close. Connor McDavid is probably five times better than Dreisaitl, and it's crazy yeah, to say. Uh-huh. And Dreisaitl is probably five times better than the next guy. So you have two of the best players in the world on one team, and you still can't get it done. You still can't win. That's a problem. And I don't want to talk about contracts because Lou Lamorello absolutely just sat still all offseason. He made, again, offers to players that didn't want to come here. As an Islander fan, it only tells me one thing. Everybody was saying that nobody wanted to come here and nobody wanted to sign here because they didn't have their own stadium. They get their own stadium. It's a beautiful stadium at the racetrack. It's hard to get to the stadium because you have to walk a mile to get to the stadium stadium where the parking lot is, but it's a beautiful stadium. But now you get the stadium and now you have to trade away first round draft picks to bring in good players to play with some of your youngsters and you're trading away your future. Do you know that the Islanders franchise, their farm system is 32nd in the NHL, which is dead last. Wow. Dead last. Lou Lamorello, when he took over for Garth Snow, you know where the Islanders farm system was? Middle of the pack. was ninth. Wow. And ever since Lou Lamorello has taken over this team, they're ranked 30 seconds. And they're the oldest team in the NHL. And they're the slowest team pace-wise in the NHL, and their power play was historically bad. When we come back, a little bit of Steph Curry, as he comes out and says that he is the greatest guard to ever play this game. I'm going to tell you why I think he's out of his mind. When we come back, we will get into some Steph Curry and... Curry time! Here on the Weekend Crunch. We... Are back, ladies and gentlemen. As you know, this is the Weekend Crunch. I'm your host, Daryl Marks, my co-host, Speedy Petey. Remember, can listen to our show every single Saturday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. New York Eastern Time only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, brought to you by New York Sports Team Magazine and the World Wide Sports Radio Network. Check out the World Wide Sports Radio website by going to www.worldwidesportsradio.com. Check out all our shows throughout the week, including the Loud Mouths, every single Wednesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network by going to www.worldwidesportsradio.com. Steph Curry has a lot to say on the Gilbert Arenas podcast, and I'm going to tell you why Steph Curry is losing his mind. On the Gilbert Arenas podcast, Gil's Arena, he asked Steph Curry if he thought he was the greatest point guard ever, and Steph Curry responded yes. Steph also added that conversation is only him and Magic Johnson. Arenas said that Curry's influence on the game of basketball is why he would rank him number one among point guards. Michael Jordan texted Stephen A. Smith that Magic Johnson is easily the best guard of all time. In his career, Steph is averaging 24.6 points per game, 4.7 rebounds per game, 6.5 Assists per game with a 47.5 field goal percentage, 42.8% three-point percentage, and 91% free throw percentage. Magic Johnson averaged 19.5 points per game, 7.2 rebounds per game, and 11.2 assists per game with a 52% field goal percentage, 30.3% three-point percentage, and 84.8% free throw percentage. Let me tell you something. Comparing Magic Johnson from the 80s and the early 90s or even the late 70s is ridiculous to compare Steph Curry. The game is completely different. If Magic Johnson played in this time, Magic Johnson would be averaging more points, more rebounds, 
more assists, and his three-point percentage would be up over 30%. Just like Michael Jordan, I think his career was 28%. Magic Johnson would be right there at 39-40%. Now, he's not Steph Curry, and I'm not saying he is when it comes to shooting. All-around game, Magic Johnson could defend multiple positions. Steph Curry could only defend one position, really, and he's not good at it. And to say that he's the best point guard of all time, Isaiah Thomas was a better player than you. As a matter of fact, there's a player on your team was the best point guard in this era, and that's Chris Paul. He's a better all-around player than you were. And you are. Now, could he shoot like you? No. Nobody can. But all-around game? That's ridiculous. Everybody thinks that I hate Steph Curry. I don't hate the guy. I think he's a great player. To say that he's the greatest point guard of all time is ridiculous. You can't sit here and argue that. And honestly, if you go up and down some of the rosters that some of these point guards that play in the guard positions over the last 25-30 years, there were better point guards than him. Jason Kidd, too. Jason Kidd, John Stockton, they don't shoot like him. Nobody does. He's the greatest shooter of all time. But to compare his skills to Magic Johnson, Isaiah Thomas, Jason Kidd, he took the Nets to an NBA Finals. I don't want to hear about their team. Kenya Martin was an okay player. He was a good player. That was their second best player. That team sucked. They had no reason to be there in the NBA Finals. That's why they got their butts whipped by San Antonio. Here's another one. Allen Iverson. He couldn't shine Allen Iverson's sneakers. Allen Iverson changed the point guard position. Yes, he was moved just like him as a shooting guard to a point guard when he came into the league. Allen Iverson took two Philadelphia 76er teams that had no right to go to the finals. Took them to the finals. Steph Curry, when Thompson was hurt and Draymond couldn't stay healthy, did he take his team to the playoffs? Did he put his team on his shoulders and take him all the way to the finals? The answer is no. And you know why? Because the game is different. And if Steph Curry played in a time Magic Johnson played, he wouldn't be the same player. As a matter of fact, he'd probably never be on the court because he'd beat the hell out of him. Yeah, and you also look at body types from different eras, too. Like, Magic Johnson was like that revolutionary big-time point guard, too, which has helped for the game today, too. Like, yeah, Steph Curry's changed the game with the threes, which is definitely fair because of the volume that teams shoot at it now. All the basketball broadcasters we've had on our show have said the volume is at an all-time high. It's going to go to continue to go up at an all-time high. But think about longer point guards too. Think about guys that can dribble the ball that are wings that there's so many of them in today's game. You think we would have like somebody like a Jason Tatum and a Luka Doncic and all these guys without somebody like Magic Johnson that could have those kind of ball handling skills at that size too? That level of defense that he played at too? I mean, the influence is there for him just as much as it is and more for Steph Curry in terms of more concepts of the game. So, yes, Gilbert Arenas can say, all right, he influenced the game from that regard, fine, but let's not act like Magic Johnson didn't have one of the most unique prototypes at the point guard position either. He changed everything to the point guard position. The size and the advantage that Magic Johnson had and what he did in the finals and playing and defending the center position, the power forward position, he put the Lakers team on his back to win them their first championship in the late 70s, early 80s. And they went to the final in like the 90s when everyone else retired pretty much and Magic Johnson was like one of the last ones left. I think it was him and Worthy that were the last ones left and they, they lost to Chicago. That doesn't mean that Steph Curry isn't a great player. It doesn't mean that Steph Curry isn't amongst the top 15 point guards of all time. But there were a lot of good point guards at the time in their careers and he tries to put himself on the pedestal. LeBron James, and I have a lot of respect for LeBron James and his talent and his skill. His wife and him and his family <laughs> at the ESPY Awards tried to make LeBron James as the greatest basketball player ever to live. He's not Michael Jordan. He could go down as the second greatest basketball player of all time, and he probably will. But he's not Michael Jordan. And those are facts.
Knicks. I know LeBron James wants to be declared the best, and half of these guys want to be considered the best player at their position. I'm not a Kobe fan. I take Kobe Bryant over Steph Curry any day. The one reason why I think Steph Curry wants to stand out and say the things that he says, it's publicity. It's what Steph Curry wants to do. When he's done with his career, and when everybody's trying to compare him to the greatest guards and the greatest point guards of all time that ever played the game, he wants to be considered as a as the top three or top two that ever played the game. And he's not. Because he doesn't do the things that you expect a point guard to do. He's not a two-way player. And I don't want to hear, oh, he's still amongst the league's best in steals. What does that mean? Go look at his defensive prowess. Go look at his game. Go look at where he's rated as a defensive player at the guard position. It's amongst the league's worst. That tells you that he's not a two-way player. How could you sit here and say, hey, you know what? I'm the greatest point guard to ever play when you're not even a two-way player. Yeah, and again, he's had his overcoming with his size, too. Like, the different things that he's done, able to do is the game well. His inside game is really good, even not being super big, either. But, at the same time, that it doesn't discount everyone else's inside game from being nothing, too. These other point guards. And you look at somebody like Chris Paul, who's led the league at steals many times in his career already. Chris Paul, who still shoots free throws very well, and still has a good inside game and shooting game. Like, he doesn't have a significant flaw in his game compared to Steph Curry, who, yeah, you, the defense is, is probably below average for what you consider for a point guard. And yeah, he does everything everything else well shooting wise. He's a great shooter, wise. man. And he's the greatest shooter to ever live. He will go down forever. I don't think anybody will break his three-point record when he is said and done. And that could be two years from now, three years. There's nobody that's going to break his three-point record because nobody shoots as many threes and nobody's as accurate as Steph Curry is. And that gives Steph Curry a lot of clout because of who he is as a player and what he has done for the NBA changing the game. For the worst, if you ask me. Regardless, I think you look at the well-roundedness of the point guard position for other things, too. Steph Curry's a great ball handler. Steph Curry's a great shooter. Steph Curry's a great passer. Let's not act like there weren't other guys doing that, too. Like, Damian Lillard is just as good of a ball handler, if not better than Steph Curry is. I take Damian Lillard over him any day. Yeah, Damian Lillard inside is probably just as good, if not better than Steph And Damian Lillard's not a winner, either. That's something that you have to look at. If you put Damian Lillard on those Nets teams, you put Steph Curry on those Nets teams, you put Steph Curry or Damian on those 76 teams. Could they take him all the way to the finals like Allen Iverson did, like Jason Kidd did? And the answer is no, because they couldn't do it on their teams right now. The game is different. Obviously, at the time that they were dominant with Allen Iverson and Jason Kidd era, it's a different game now. And I think when you look at the game and you look at the two-way game that basketball has really been defined as, CP3 is the greatest point guard of this era because he was a two-way player. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's get into it. What do we got? Crunch time! It's time for Crunch Time. All right, we were talking about Jonathan Taylor before, and there's a team in the AFC that's interested in the Miami Dolphins. Buy or sell, he will be traded there. It seems like Miami will do anything to find themselves a running back. They couldn't get Dalvin Cook. They weren't interested in Leonard Fournette when they interviewed him or Ezekiel Elliott. So it seems like the only person that's available is Jonathan Taylor, and he seems like he's heading over there. I absolutely buy it. I am going to sell it. One thing I do like the rookie that they drafted, Devin O'Shane, and I also don't think that the Colts right now now are in position. I think they're going to play hardball. We've heard Jim Irsay say he wants a first-round pick. I don't think they're just going to throw him away for nothing at this point. I think they're going to try to wait it out and maybe get some better value later in the season. So I am going to sell that one. All right, buy or sell. Shohei Otani will still get over $550 million on his next deal. Absolutely buy it. It's all about the money, and whoever gives him that kind of money is a place that he is going to sign. I, I can't see the Giants not offering it to him. I can't see the Dodgers not offering it to him. I can't see the Angels not offering it to him. He will stay 
stay on the West Coast, and he will definitely get between five hundred and fifty and six hundred million dollars. I absolutely buy it. I absolutely buy it too because I think all those teams don't necessarily have to use him as a pitcher in year one either. Seattle Mariners, uh, another team that's interested in him, a very good pitching staff. The Giants have always done well with bringing in new pitchers and making it work, and we know the Dodgers like they'll rebirth anybody from Andrew Haney to anyone old imaginable. All these Japanese pitchers that have already come in there, they know how to do it very well. So I absolutely buy it. Let's go to college football. Michigan this week will be without Jim Harbaugh, but they're still favored by 36 against Western Michigan. Buy or sell, they will cover that. I absolutely believe they're going to cover it. Michigan has three games without Jim Harbaugh, and all three teams are absolutely horrendous. They're absolutely going to just dismantle Western Michigan. I am absolutely going to buy it. Yeah, I'm going to buy it, too, because they still have enough defensive prowess, too. That's going to help them be able to cover the spread, too. Even with a new receiving core and J.J. McCarthy, an experienced quarterback, I still think they'll help in this matchup. I am going to buy that as well. All right, buy or sell. Patrick Kane will return to the New York Rangers. Absolutely sell it. I do not see Patrick Kane coming back. After his hip surgery, he does not have a contract. I can see him going back to Chicago or maybe Detroit. I cannot see him going back to the New York Rangers. I think the New York Rangers and Patrick Kane's history is now over. I absolutely believe this and I'm absolutely going to sell this. Yeah, I'm going to sell it too because the Rangers have been more active when it comes to the trade deadline in recent years since Chris Drury's come in as GM. I actually like that Detroit move. I actually think that could be interesting going back with DeBrinket who he played with for five years there in Chicago and Detroit's a good team all around. I think he could definitely have a good shot there. I don't think the Rangers are going to do it. I am going to sell that as well. Alright, back to the NFL. We know Chris Jones is not happy with the Kansas City Chiefs. By or sell, his new contract, wherever it will be, will be more per year than Quinn Williams, 25. I absolutely sell it. I cannot see him getting more money than Quinn Williams. Quinn Williams is the best young defensive lineman in football, and that's why he got the money that he got. So I'm going to sell it. I'm going to buy it. I don't think he'll get more years than Quinn Williams. So he's not going to get four years, but I think he's going to get either two or three, and I do think he'll either push the Chiefs hard or another team will give it to him because interior defensive line has been so very valued in today's game, too. It's the fastest path of the quarterback, especially with these quicker schemes and these quicker quarterbacks. I think the Chiefs will end up paying him, but if they don't, I still think another team will give him that, even if it's just two or three years. I, I am going to buy that. All right, go back to college football. Prime time. Deion Sanders making his debut against TCU, the defending runner-ups. Buy or sell. TCU will cover their minus 21. Absolutely buy it. I mean, TCU was in a national championship last year. They're still a very good team and a very good school, so I absolutely buy it. Yeah, I'm going to buy it, too. Colorado's still on a tough process of trying to figure things out. I think it's going to take a little while for them, too. TCU, even though they lost a lot, it'll still be fine. I, I'm going to buy that, too, at home. All right, buy or sell. James Harden's holdout will last into the regular season. Buy it. I don't know what's going on with James Harden's brain, obviously $35 million doesn't mean anything to him. So I absolutely buy he's going to be sitting out until he gets what he wants because he's a prima donna and he will be traded. Yeah, I'm going to buy it, sir. He said he doesn't want to play for Daryl Morey at all. I can't imagine him trying to step up the cart with the 76ers at all whatsoever. I don't think he cares about money either. I absolutely 100% agree. I'm going to buy it. All right, buy or sell. Either Billy Epler or Buck Showalter will be fired at the end of the year. I think it's going to be Buck. Epler seems like he's going to be there at least another year until David Stern's comes, and then he will make the decision if Billy Epler after next year will be a part of the organization. So I buy Buck. I don't buy Billy Epler. Yeah, I think that's the worst kept secret in baseball, too. We've seen it for a while. David Stern's coming to the Mets, and who knows? Craig Council coming from the Brewers could be an interesting spot. Maybe one of their bench coaches as well could be another option if they just want to stay in-house, too. And I think there'll be other young guys. The Mets needs to shift in a younger direction, more analytic-driven. I buy it as well. All right, last one. This will be Stefan Diggs last year on the Buffalo Bills. 
I believe it, and I'm going to buy it. And I'm going to tell you why. Stefan Diggs is going to make $27.5 million next year. There is no way in hell the Buffalo Bills are going to give him that money. They're going to have to renegotiate that deal. He will not renegotiate that deal, and they will release him in the offseason. So I absolutely buy it. I'm going to sell it because I do think that $27 million is still valuable for somebody like Diggs, too. And I, I think he'll still end up getting it somewhere else. He's been pretty healthy throughout his career. Most of his injuries have been nagging, and I do think Buffalo knows that they haven't been able to develop other receivers well. I think Josh Allen needs that kind of target to help him out because the unknowns of Gabe Davis and a lot of their other tight ends are just too much for the chim the chance. I like Kincaid, but they don't have enough besides that to be able to trust. I think the Bills will end up blocking him up, even if it's enough for another three years, kind of like Jones. I will sell it. That's it for our show, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you to former Twins, Pirates, Marlins, and Yankees first baseman and right fielder, Garrett Jones. He was fantastic, so we really appreciate him joining us, and we're looking forward to getting him on in the near future. Thank you to all the fans out there. Thank you obviously to all the Long Island fans, the New York fans around the country, everybody that listens to us on iHeartRadio, everybody that listens to our show, The Sports Loudmouth, every single week on Wednesdays and Thursdays on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Thank you to everybody that tunes in to all the shows. Thank you to 103.9. Thank you to Bruce, John, and Pat for letting us do what we do best, and that's talk sports throughout the network. We will be back next week on Saturday as always at 7 p.m., Tune in only on 103.9, the LI News Radio Network, to listen to the Weekend Crunch every single weekend at 7 p.m. on Saturdays. We are done, ladies and gentlemen. We'll talk to you next week. Good night, everybody.